Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Twisted Talks. I'm Tanya. I'm Josh. And today is Josh's turn to tell us a gruesome tale. Yes, you know. that's what we do. We love a Twisted Talk. We do. Um, so, without further ado, this week I am covering the case of Bible John. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this killer is believed to be responsible for the murders of three women between 1968 and 1969 in Glasgow, Scotland. Nice. So, let's nice. get into it and do a bit of our well, intro not nice. first. Not, not nice. nice. Not, not nice. nice. Take it back. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, it's near Ireland. <laughs> it's near Ireland. I was just trying <laughs> to think, was I in Glasgow? slightly more local. Um, I think I was, but anyway, continue. Glasgow. Um, so, the victims were all young brunette women between the ages of 25 and 32. Fuck, I'm glad I wasn't alive then. Neither were they. Joshua. Um, but I mean, like, by the end of it. Yep. Um, Continue. Oh, sorry, that was bad. <laughs> that, was, that was in poor taste. That was. My taste has never been um, great. Great. <laughs> I'm, I was anyway, make he liked comment. women of my description. <laughs> Look at some of my exes. And in my age range. <laughs> um, anywho. Well, let's not get onto that. Let's not. That That's a whole other podcast let's, episode. If we ever make a Patreon. Yeah, that's like a private chat made public on Patreon yeah. for the low, low price of eleven ninety nine a month. No, I'm joking. We don't have one yet. <laughs> we don't have a Patreon. <laughs> I don't think we'd be charging that much. Hey, think big. Okay, right. Well, I'll leave it up to you. You're the technical guru. <laughs> Continue telling me about Bible John, please. Uh, anywho. I would like to get home So, through. all of the women met the killer at the Barrowland Ballroom, a dance hall and music venue in Glasgow City. The killer has never been identified and the case is still unsolved and remains one of the most extensive manhunts in Scottish criminal history. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. It's been a long time. What's that? 31 years until 2000. That's like over 50 years anyway. You could have just asked me. My dad was born in 1970. He's 52. So it's been 53 or 54 years. Yeah. But anywho, it's been X amount of time. I like how I assumed you would know what year my dad was born. Yeah, I know what year my mum was born, but that was the late 70s. Yeah, my dad was 1970. The beginning of 1970. Bang on. So, um, this case came to be the first time in Scotland that the Crown Office authorised the publication of a composite drawing or composite sketch of an individual Ooh. suspected of murder. That's very interesting. So, little interesting, I suppose you could almost consider that history fact, or criminal history go. fact. There we go, Twisted Talks with a bit of history. Um, this case, oh yeah, I just said that. <laughs> the killer became known as Bible John because he repeatedly quoted the Bible and condemned any form of adultery when he was in uh, the company of his final victim, because apparently that's normal things to try out there, mm-hmm. at a dance hall. Yep. Um, now, convicted serial killer and rapist Peter Tobin was speculated to have been Bible John due to his known movements in MO after his conviction for three murders in the late 2000s. Um, police later limited, eliminated, eliminated him as a suspect, but we'll get more into him later. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to move straight on into the murders. So, on the 23rd of February 1968, the naked body of 25-year-old Patricia Patricia Docker, an auxiliary nurse, which I believe is also known as a healthcare assistant, mm-hmm. was found in the doorway of a lock-up garage at, I nearly said garage, I was feeling American, at Carmichael Place, uh, Battlefield, Glasgow. Um, the discovery of Patricia's body was made by a man who was on his way to work. 
Um, now the location of her body was only yards away from Langside um, Place, which is where she lived. Um, Patricia's body showed evidence of substantial blunt force trauma, uh, especially to the face and head. Uh, she'd been strangled to death, possibly with a belt. Um, Patricia's handbag, watch and clothes were missing from the scene of the crime. Her handbag was later recovered from the River Cart by an underwater search team mm -hmm. and her watch was recovered from a pool of water near the murder scene. However, her clothes were never found. So that's what you kept as a souvenir? Seems that way. Okay. Um, now, extensive door-to-door -door inquiries were carried out in the area and resulted in a witness who did recall hearing a woman scream, Leave me alone, the evening before. Now, there wasn't really any hard evidence at the crime scene. Uh, an ambulance man, though, who had retrieved the body informed the investigators that the victim was a nurse who worked at Mernskirk Hospital in nearby Renfrewshire. I don't know if I pronounced her hospital name right, but, you know, whatever. Uh, the information... Yeah, it, I don't know how else you'd say it. Um, the information led to the victim being formally identified by her father the following day. Um... It always makes me, sorry to interrupt, but it always makes me so sad to think Family that, have to just go in and see that. Like, that's the last memory they're going to have of their loved one. And it's like going in and not knowing for sure whether it's them or not. Like, it's not like it's at the funeral home with an open casket. And I, I don't yeah. think everywhere does that. It's more of a, that's no, a big Irish thing, but an open like, casket is, I think. I remember, um, the, so like, we, obviously we've had a lot of deaths in, particularly my dad's side of the family. So like, I've been going to funerals since I was like, nine and there was deaths in the family before that, but I wasn't allowed to go to the funerals because I was too young. Probably same, like. Um, but like it wasn't my first open casket. I didn't really take much notice. Second one was fine. It wasn't up until I was. It wasn't until I was like eighteen, and I went to my cousin Michael's funeral. I remember we were going into the funeral home, and you know the funeral home here in town. You go in, and then you go around the corner, and the coffin is around the corner. Are we on about the newer place, the older place. or the old? Okay. Not, not yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Not the chapel, yeah. the old place. And um, I remember I went in and I just, like, my body just stopped because I couldn't face seeing him in the coffin. And I don't know, was it because before that, everyone else that had passed away had been kind of elderly. Michael was very young. It um, was a big difference in circumstance. Yeah, um, but it was, it, that was quite difficult for me and I think as well you by that age it's more of an age to have much more of an awareness yeah, like of what's it, going on honestly I'm the type of person when like, you're younger you're just kind of going with the flow doing what you're supposed to be doing yeah and I've noticed I am the kind of person that like the death doesn't actually hit me until I see the open casket yeah and then I'm like oh my god they're actually they're gone like whereas I'm like that in a sense so like it does it still doesn't properly hit me when I see the casket mm. it's when they're putting the lid on for me um well that too but, it's, but like I or the lowering the, the if I tears, like the the heart broke like the sobs don't come until the coffin's going into the ground yeah um it's it's weird it's just I guess everyone processes different. yeah like if for example like for me like with like um I don't know was I there but anyway with deaths that I've seen like it's kind of because if I've been close enough to the person where I've been there when they pull back the curtain and put the lid on the coffin oh that's when I start crying because I'm like you know and then it's like okay this is literally the door is being put on that's it no more seeing them alive or dead when I was at um, but if I don't see that part then it doesn't happen until the lowering when I was at the coffin. when I was at Pat's funeral um, I literally well it, it was the first cremation I'd been to so it wasn't, I've only been to one. I was kind of teary in the church and then we got to the crematorium and I was kind of okay. Um, and then his sister got up and gave a beautiful eulogy that, that and it. I 
was gone and then I stopped and then my aunt got up and gave a eulogy and I was gone again and then they closed the curtains and they played some of his favourite songs and I could not stop crying like I had to leave I remember one of the main times her funeral with me that's made me cry in terms of like eulogy or songs or whatever mm. and like you know it's also it's a little bit f- like it's not funny but it's a little bit funny in hindsight in the sense of the dramatics of it go on so it was my grand uncle Mm-hmm. And his, I remember it was in England, and when the coffin was being, do you know, when they like, um, everyone starts to lift it up to bring it out of the church. Yeah. Um, what song did they play? Oh God. Uh, what's that fella? Time to say goodbye. Do you, um, oh, he's really Bocelli. Oh, Peter Bocelli. No, Andrea Bocelli. Andrea Bocelli. It's time to. I don't think sing. I know that one. Oh, you definitely they do. They played um tomorrow. Tomorrow. At Pat's funeral. Who's that by? Oh, what a song! Tomorrow. I can't listen to that song anymore. I honestly can't. It makes me bawl. And then there was um, like a real old timey song, and it was a it, the I couldn't tell you who sings it. I couldn't tell you the lyrics. I couldn't tell you the name of it, but it was about like um something. It was about a couple, and I just I couldn't stop looking at my nana. And every time I looked at my nana, I was roaring, crying. Mm-hmm. Um. But yeah, so that's, there you go. This one. I know it. Yeah. Can you see now? Turn it off. Yeah. I'm going to cry. But like, in hindsight, you know, you have to have a little chuckle at the fact of like, the dramatics of, but it was obviously a song they all loved. Do you know what I mean? So like, there is that sentimentality to it. And it is a beautiful song. Oh, like, I do think it's lovely. But that just, I was like. (laughs) Yeah, I do think it's lovely the way, um, like, a person's favourite song or favourite songs are played as the coffin is lowered. Yeah. Um, Like, I couldn't listen to Guns N' Roses, um, Sweet Child of Mine, for, I'd say, a good two years after Leon's funeral. Yeah. Um, without crying. Anytime it came on the radio, it was just instant. I was like that with Panic at the Disco songs. Oh, this is gospel. Oh, yeah. broke my heart. But like, yeah. So yeah, in conclusion, me and Josh have been to way too many funerals for a couple of 25-year-olds, but we moved. Just to clarify, we're not a couple. We're just a couple of 25-year-olds. Yeah. yeah. I said a pair of 25-year-olds, didn't I? Or did I say a couple of 25-year-olds? I don't know, either way. Anyway, yeah. We're not paired I don't have the. I don't have the tool that he desires. No. <laughs> no, sad times. Mm-hmm. Anywho, moving back on to murder. Um, so, <laughs> um, Patricia was married, but estranged from her husband, and she had one child. On the night of her murder, she had told her parents she would spend the evening dancing at the Majestic Ballroom in Hope Street, but for reasons not known, she had chose to spend most of the evening at the Barrowland Ballroom. Now, in saying reasons not known, it's assumed and likely due to the over 25s night that the venue hosted every Thursday. So that probably appealed to her. Mm-hmm. Um, when Patricia did not come home that evening, um, as most people, I suppose, you wouldn't assume the worst, especially mm-hmm. when they're but out. But you would be concerned. Her parents assumed that maybe she'd stayed with a friend. Yeah. Well, yeah, natural, you know, natural assumption. She's yeah. a grown woman. She's allowed to do her thing and stay out for a while. It's not like they're sitting at home waiting on their teenager to come home. Yeah, exactly. You know, know, so you might might not straight away go to the panic. She's been married. She has a child herself. Like, she's an adult. Yeah. They wouldn't have much reason to To be be panicking too much until, let's say, in this case, the next day. So, um, 
Oh yeah. So police inquiries would only determine it actually was days later by the time the police inquiries inquiries determined that in the late evening Patricia had left the majestic ballroom to go to the Barrowland. Mm-hmm. So for a few days they didn't know that she'd actually changed dance venues. They thought she'd just stayed at the majestic. Exactly. Ballroom. So I suppose that kind of delayed things a bit in terms of investigation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, absolutely. So Patricia's post mortem was done by Gilbert Forbes at the University of Glasgow Medical School. I still think Gilbert is such a shit name. I'm not the biggest fan of it. Sorry if there's any Gilberts listening. I'm sorry. I'm I'm sorry, but... I'm calling you Bert. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> and, um, and the post-mortem confirmed that the cause of death was strangulation and that Patricia's body showed no clear evidence of sexual, so, uh, sexual okay, assault. So, so it's not necessarily ruled out, but there's no clear evidence either. They couldn't definitively say... Yeah. So the stage of rigor mortis at the time of her discovery indicated that Patricia had likely died not long after she left the Barrowland ballroom. Um, investigators suspect that the killer likely grabbed Patricia before repeatedly punching her and kicking her in the face as she screamed twice, leave me alone. Mm-hmm. And he uh, then went on to rape her before strangling her to death, leaving her naked body there with nothing um, with nothing but a, nothing but a shoe nearby close to the doorway of the lockup garage and Carmichael Place. So again, obviously the rape thing is speculation. Kind of not like it's yeah, exactly. It's very likely but not definitive yeah. due to the post mortem I suppose being inconclusive being on sexual to, assault. Unable to as I I love the word definitively apparently, but unable to definitively say Yeah, I love there that word too for some reason. Assault. Uh, then moving on to around a year and a half later, on Saturday the 16th of August 1969, I love this name, Jemima MacDonald, a 32-year-old yeah, mother name. of three, also spend also decided to spend her evening dancing at the Barrowland Ballroom. Now, Jemima regularly attended the Barrowland and her sister Margaret O'Brien would take care of her three children while she was out. It was nearing midnight and Jemima was seen by multiple people with a young, well-dressed and well-spoken man of a slim build between the age of 25 and 35 Mm -hmm. and between 6 foot and 6 foot 2 in height. The man was described to have had short, dark brown hair with fair streaks, likely spoke with a Glaswegian accent and occasionally added brief biblical quotations into his conversation. Now, I know it was 1969, but someone starts to biblical quotations into my conversation and I'm like, get away. Jesus guy preaching outside work the other day. I was collecting, I was doing the collection. I'd literally be like, look, I'm too far gone for Jesus. No, I was inside in the building, he couldn't get near me, but um, I was doing the collection and I saw this, like, it was like a horse trailer. Um, Obviously being towed by a car, but like, it was covered over with, um, like, kind of fabric they use on shipping containers. Okay. Um, And it just had a lot of Jesus quotes on it. And I remember rolling my eyes and then one of the girls came in and was like, oh, I was just on my lunch break and, um, there was a guy preaching outside the church and I really thought that they were going to get in my car. <laughs> I was like, oh no, oh no. Preach from far. <laughs> Please. <laughs> um, so, uh, Jemima was seen leaving the Barrowland not long after midnight on the 17th of August in the company of this man. And she was last seen walking towards either Main Street or Landrecy Street in the direction of her home and that was at around 12.40am. Now, Margaret, Jemima's sister, was concerned when Jemima did not return home, obviously, because she's got three kids at home. It's her sister minding them, you I'm know. I'm sorry to interrupt. Are you charging your vape off your headphones? No, off my laptop. Oh, that's that's impressive. 
I'm, I'm it very, died a minute ago and I was not okay. I'm very impressed. Anyway, uh, so sh- her sister was at home minding the kids and she was concerned. Yeah, um, you know, because obviously Jemima didn't return home. Mm-hmm. So later that day, now it says day, but obviously that was the early morning hours, so yep. late at night, but it's still considered, yep. you know. Yeah. So later that day, Margaret had heard rumours that young children had been seen leaving a derelict tenement building in McKeith Street talking about there being a body in the premises. So not great. Not great. Um, Now, by the Monday morning, still no sign of Jemima, Margaret was obviously so worried Mm -hmm. that she herself walked down and into that old building where she discovered her sister's severely battered body lying face down with her shoes and stockings lying beside her. That's awful. Um, Even, like, I know they're only kids, but, like, go to the guards, the police. Yeah, do you know, but... Bad wins. Yeah. Bad, bad wins. Anywho, Jemima's postmortem concluded that she had been raped and extensively beaten, especially, again, in the face, like the prior victim, and also like the prior victim, um, strangled to death, but this time with one of her own stockings. Jemima had been murdered about 30 hours before the body had been found. Jemima's body was fully clothed, unlike Patricia, the previous victim. However, her underwear had been torn, and like Patricia, Jemima was actually menstruating at the time of her death. Now, that wasn't mentioned in my previous thing, but Patricia was okay. also menstruating at the time of her murder as well. Interesting. Um, so, very strange yeah. connection like, between them there There and that. wouldn't necessarily have been a way for the murderer to know that, so I'm thinking maybe that was just luck. Um, unless now he had a route through the parcels or something and saw pads or tampons or something yeah that's what you'd think because I feel like in the 60s like I'm very open when I've got my period I'll tell the whole house I'll tell the whole town if I need to but back then I feel like it was more taboo it was more taboo yeah Um, now police inquiries into the movements of Jemima on the night of her murder led to several eyewitnesses who were able to accurately describe the man that Jemima had been with at the Barrowland Door-to-door inquiries on McKeith Street also led to a woman who remembered hearing a woman's screams on the evening of Jemima's murder. However, this witness could not remember the precise time. Therefore, the police thought of this information to be little use to their investigation. Because, you know, it was just hearing something, not knowing what time. Yeah, exactly. You know, very likely, probably linked. Yeah. So then, obviously, we move on to the initial investigation. Mm-hmm. Um, so Glasgow City Police obviously noticed several similarities between the murders of Patricia Docker and Jemima MacDonald. Uh, both women had been murdered after attending the Barrowland Ballroom. Both had been beaten before being strangled to death with a ligature. And both women were menstruating. Uh, they'd both had their handbags taken from the crime scene. However, initially, the murders were not considered to be the work of the same killer. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not really sure why, because they literally textbooks sound the same. Yeah. Now, even though extensive public appeals were made, the investigation into the murder of Patricia Docker unfortunately quickly became a cold case. The police had little information due to lack of witnesses and lack of hard evidence. Mm-hmm. The investigation was also hindered by investigators not discovering that Patricia Docker had attended the Barrowland on the evening of her murder until three days after the murder. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, obviously, a year and a half later, after the discovery of Jemima McDonald's body, police noted the similarities it had to the murder of Patricia Docker. Um, police did not conclusively link both murders to the same killer, um, but they could not completely rule the theory out either. Okay. Um, as well as this, um, 
police were certain that the killer or killers were very knowledgeable of the local area. However, they still could have been a stranger to the area as none of the eyewitnesses the investigator spoke to knew the man or men seen with either of the women prior to their murders. Okay. Now, as mentioned earlier, for the first time in a Scottish murder hunt, a composite drawing of the man that Jemima MacDonald had last been seen alive with was given to the press. Uh, the composite drawing was widely distributed through both uh, the newspapers and on television throughout Scotland in an attempt to identify the suspect. Um, as well as this, male and female undercover police officers undertook discreet surveillance at the Barrowland uh, Ballroom in efforts to identify the suspect. Um, however, the police surveillance at the Barrowland Ballroom ceased in late October 1969 due to it failing to produce any suspects. Mm -hmm. um, and business owners also blamed detectives at the time for a sharp drop in attendance figures because people totally stopped yeah. going because of the police not to do people being murdered. Yeah. Well, I guess it's pr probably, probably both, yeah. but like but I f the I finding the murderer is a bit more of a priority than your business, love. I don't know, is it, is it, I don't know, but like I feel like you can always spot an undercover guard. I feel like that would be easier nowadays than back then, though. Yeah. Yeah, true. Um Now then moving on again to the next murder. On the 31st of October 1969, the body of 29-year-old Helen Puttock was found behind a tenement in the Scotston district of Glasgow by a man out walking his dog. Her body uh, was beside a drain pipe in the back garden of her Earl Street flat. Helen had been stripped partially naked, severely beaten around the face before being raped and then strangled to death with again one of her own stockings, just like with Jemima. In her back garden. In her back garden as well. Like they were all so close to home. Every single one of them. Oh. They were all a yard, a yard, few Very, only yards like away from the like house. Like all three of them. It's like Rain and Murray. Like she was like practically so home. close to home. Yeah. Um, now the contents of Helen's handbag have been scattered close to her body. But the handbag itself was missing from the crime scene. Uh, grass and weed stains on the sole, soles of her feet indicated that she had engaged in a violent struggle with her killer. Um, it was evident that at one point uh, she attempted to scale a nearby railway embankment. Uh, her body also had a deep bite mark on her upper right thigh. Oof. And like with Patricia Docker and Jemima MacDonald, Helen was menstruating at the time of her murder. Okay, so now I'm like, how is he figuring out they're yeah. on their periods? How is he figuring out that they're on their periods? Helen's murderer had placed her sanitary towel beneath her left arm. Yeah. Now, the evening before her murder, Helen and her sister, Jean Langford, had been to the Barrowland Ballroom, where both had become acquainted with two men, both named John. Mm -hmm. One of these men had said he worked as a slater and lived in Castle Milk, while the other man had been a well-spoken man who did not say where he actually lived. Um, after being with these two men for more than an hour, Helen, Jean and the two men left the Barrowland to head home. The man named John, who had been Jean's dance partner, walked to George Square to get a bus, while Jean, Helen and the man who had been Helen's dance partner got a taxi. Uh, the trio set off from Glasgow Cross, making a 20-minute journey west toward mm -hmm. Jean's Knightswood home. Um, during the trio's conversation in the taxi, most of the key information relating to the killer's psychological profile became clear. Um, the taxi arrived at Jean's house and, you know, she exited, leaving Helen and her dance partner still in the taxi. Mm -hmm. So Helen, Helen's dance partner. Yep. Uh, the taxi then continued towards Helen's house in Scotston. Um, Jean later told detectives that Helen's companion had been a teetotal individual, meaning he did not drink alcohol. Oh, teetotal. Teetotal, sorry, yeah. yeah. Um, 
meaning he did not drink alcohol, and he repeatedly quoted the Old Testament stories of Moses during the time she and her sister had talked with him in the taxi. As you do. I'm sorry. I just, I just, like, I know it's the 60s. It's different times. People were more religious, but I still wouldn't but, be like, something... I also just think... Well, maybe it's just because I'm not religious myself. Like, if I met a fella and he was persistently quoting the Bible, he wouldn't get any more than half a quote out and I'd be gone. Do you know what I mean? I and I know back gone. then, majority of people probably were religious to some extent. Yeah. But still, like, it's... Especially it's your first time with someone, would you not be focusing on talking about other things? Yeah, not, like... That's not Not strange. being a preacher. Strange. Maybe he was a preacher. Who knows? Um, let's see. Oh, yeah. Um, so, you know, Old Testament stories of Moses during the time she ha- she and her sister had talked with him in the taxi. Yeah. The man had also referred to the Barrowland as, adul- as an adulterous den of iniquity. Hmm. Okay. And of his disapproval of married women visiting the premises at- as the four had gotten their coats at the end of the evening. Okay, what's it got to do with you? Mm-hmm. Mr. John. Um, now, then, moving on a bit. Helen Puttock's sister, Jean Langford, described the suspect as being a tall, slim and well-dressed young man with reddish or fair hair, rounded neatly at the back, aged between 25 and 30, being around 5 foot 10 inches in height. The man had given his name as either John Templeton, John Simpleson or John Emerson, and he had been a polite, well-spoken man, and again, as I was quoting the Old Testament during the ride home, he had also indicated that he was neither Catholic nor Protestant. Jean said that it had become clear to her during the taxi ride that the man had considered her presence to be an inconvenience. At one of at one stage of the taxi ride, he had explained that the reason he did not drink alcohol was because of being conditioned by a strict parental attitude. Um, so, I guess his parents didn't like alcohol, or yeah. one of them. Um, the man also mentioned his father's belief that dance halls were dens of iniquity, with any married women who frequented them there being that uh, who frequented them being adulterous by nature. Okay, so he's clearly got some parental issues, maybe with both parents. I'm thinking maybe his parents were quite religious. Something's not right anyway. Yeah. Um, strange. Yeah, to say the least. Um, Jean told detectives that the man with Helen had been dressed in a well-cut brown reed and tailor brand suit and that he smoked embassy cigarettes. Mm -hmm. She also said that the man had mentioned he was familiar with several drinking premises. um, Premises? I don't know. Premise? Premise in the Yoker district of Glasgow and that at one time he had worked in a laboratory. Jean was able to describe distinct facial features of the man, uh, such as him having overlapping front teeth. However, bouncers at the Barrowland Ballroom dismissed a lot of this description, claiming that the man had been a sh- uh, short and well-spoken individual with black hair. Okay, but she I feel was like with the one that was in the taxi with him and was there with him for longer for kind of would have the better um, idea. And had seen his teeth. Would yeah. Have. Anywho, the last possible sighting of the suspect was made by both the driver and conductor on a night service bus, who spotted a young man watching the descript- watching matching the description given by Jean. Uh, the man was the only passenger to get off a bus at the junction of Dumbarton Road and Grey Street at around 2am on October 31st. He was in quite an untidy state, with mud stains on his jacket and a red mark on his cheek just beneath one eye. Mm-hmm. Boat witnesses also recalled his repeatedly tucking a short cuff of one sleeve into his jacket 
a man's cufflink had been found by the body of Helen Potok. So maybe this man was trying to hide the fact that he was missing a cufflink. Interesting. Yes. I think all of that points to a suspect to me. Yes, it does. He's got mudstains. And uh, this man was last seen walking towards the public ferry to cross the River Clyde to the south side of the city. Okay. I mean, it would make sense that he's not going to murder in his own very local vicinity, yeah. anywhere near where he lives. But it could be still in, he him. still could live in Glasgow and just be yeah. going to another yeah. district. Um, now, Helen Potok's murder held exceptional similarities to the two previous murders, raising further suspicions that all three murders had been committed by the same man. As we know, each victim was a mother, mm-hmm. met, their, met their murderer at the Barrowland Ballroom, their handbags were missing from the crime scene and each strangled to death. And at least two of the women had been raped prior to the murders, with one of them being inconclusive but likely. And they were all on their periods. As, yeah, as well as this, each woman had been escorted home by the killer and murdered within yards of their home. Each victim was menstruating at the time and each of them had a sanitary towel or tampon placed upon beneath or near their body. Yeah, uh, thus leading to some speculation that the women could have been murdered for refusing to have sex using their period as the reason why they wouldn't. Well, that would explain how he knew they were on their periods. Possibly. Um, now, within hours of Helen Puttock's body being discovered, another composite drawing of the suspect was made using a detailed description given by Helen's sister, Jean. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jean saw the composite images created after the murder of Jemima MacDonald and believed it to be an excellent likeness. Um, Detective Superintendent Joe Beatty asked that the public closely study the composite drawing in case it resembled anybody they may know. The suspect's hairstyle was unfashionable for the time. Therefore, 450 hairdressers in and around Glasgow were shown the updated drawing of the suspect. And as well as this, all dentists in and around the city were asked to check their records to see if they had any records for a male patient who had overlapping incisors and a missing tooth in the upper right jaw. Unfortunately, neither of these areas of inquiry provided any leads. Um, The police also produced an artist's impression portrait created by Lennox Patterson, registrar of the Glasgow School of Art, based on the recollections of Jean Langford. So, you know, they had quite a lot of um, uh, drawings and portraits based on exactly. Um, over 100 detectives were assigned full-time to work on the case and 50,000 witness statements were taken in subsequent Whoa. door-to-door inquiries. Yeah. 50,000? Like, that's Fucking a hell. lot. More than 5,000 potential suspects were questioned in the first year of the inquiry and Jean Langford had to attend over 300 identity parades. Oh, Jesus Christ. Or lineups. I yeah. prefer the term lineups. Yeah, I think lineups. Parades doesn't sound very nice. No. It's like parade implies celebration to me. Yeah. Um, it's not a celebration. Exactly. However, Jean was adamant that none of the individuals that were in the identity parades or lineups had been the man that she had last seen Helen with. All these individuals were obviously then cleared of any involvement. And fearing the killer would strike again, a team of 16 detectives were tasked to mingle with dancers at all dance halls in Glasgow. Mingle with dancers. Mingle. These detectives frequented the Barrowlands on the Barrowland Ballroom on Thursday and Saturday nights at the Over 25s event, which each victim was presumed to have met their murderer at. Yep. 
So it makes sense to make sure to be there for that. Yeah, for the for the correct names, yeah. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, despite the extensive manhunt, there were no further developments in the case and the investigation into the three murders started to go cold. With many um, officers that had been on the case believing that the killer had either been jailed for an unrelated offence, had been incarcerated at a mental hospital, had died, or even that senior police officers knew the killer's identity but had been unable to prove he had committed the murders. Others thought that he could have moved away from the Glasgow area or murdered whenever he was in the area and that maybe he wasn't from the area. Uh, The possibility he had moved or wasn't from the area and only visited prompted the police to circulate copies of the composite drawing at all British Army, Navy and Air Force bases in the UK, Europe, the Middle and Far East. So, like, they spread that wide. covered all bases. Yeah. However, this potential line of inquiry inquiry did not produce any significant leads again, unfortunately. Mm. There's a lot of dead ends here. Yeah. Hitting walls. Now, then we have um, potential suspects. Right. So, our first one comes, we'll start off here. So, Les Brown, a former detective chief inspector who was working with the Strathclyde police at the time, has supplied current investigators with details of the arrest of a suspect um, that was conducted in 1969. Uh, Les believes that this suspect uh, was very likely to be the killer and was dismissed only because he did not have notably overlapping front teeth. Okay. Um, according to Les... The man's arguing with a young woman in the Barrowland ballroom right before his arrest had raised investigators' concerns, yet this suspect was immediately released from custody, even though he had closely resembled the facial composite and had subsequently given the police a false name and address before eventually revealing his real name and address in the Gorbals. Les said that the fact this suspect did not have any have notably overlapping front teeth, despite one police sergeant's acknowledgement of this being the best suspect yet, was apparently that the teeth were apparently sufficient for ordering his release. What was his name? The suspect? Yeah. So he gave his name as, his fake name as John White. Right. But we'll, I don't think I have a real name, actually. Maybe it might not be listed. But he gave the name John White as what he'd given as the fake name. Right, okay. Um... But yeah, so apparently the fact that the teeth didn't match a description was enough to release. Which I guess was kind of, because so far all they have is someone who might look, who looks a bit like the sketch. Yeah. And who happened to be in an argument with a woman the night before his arrest, like earlier before his arrest. But like, people have arguments sometimes. Yeah. And Doesn't I mean they're a murderer. If Jean was dead set that this fella had overlapping teeth and this suspect didn't, then I suppose you would kind of Typically be like, that's a distinct him. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, many years later, uh, Les Brown spoke at length to a detective who had taken the same man to a hospital after arresting him outside the Barrowland Ballroom at the time of the murders. The suspect had needed several stitches in his head following an altercation. Um, as soon as his handcuffs were removed, he escaped from the hospital. Um, at the time of this incident, the man had also given a false name to medical personnel claiming his name to be John White. Okay, so that is definitely um, suspicious. Now, yeah, I found that sus, needing stitches and stuff, and then fleeing from the hospital yeah. before even getting the stitches is what I gather from that. Mm-hmm. Um, now, 
as well as the aforementioned um, basic circumstantial evidence, the whole demeanour of the man had led Les Brown and many of his colleagues to believe that this man may have been who they were looking for. However, after Les wrote of his suspicions in his 2005 autobiography, that man actually came forward and offered to give a DNA sample to clear his name, and this led to him being eliminated as a suspect. Okay. So, so DNA backed him up by the sounds of things to that he it's wasn't him. Possible that maybe he was some other kind of criminal and like yeah, or maybe he just thought he was going to get in trouble yeah, for whatever altercation led, led the to the stitches, you know. That, yeah. Um. So, and then that's the end of that suspect. Okay. And as you know, he was cleared, so that's him ruled out. Then we have um. The next one is an unidentified man contacted the Strathclyde police in 1983, so quite some time later, claiming to know um, that his friend had been Bible John, adding that both, um, both him and his friend had been raised in the Cranhill area of Glasgow and that they both had frequented the Barrel and Ballroom in the 1960s. He claimed that he had read an article in the Evening Times five years previously before suddenly realising his friend had been the killer. The alleged suspect was traced to be living in the Netherlands, married to a Dutch woman, but nothing else uh, was ever heard from the claimant or the supposed suspect. Okay. So I don't really know he never really, well, it didn't what to make of that because it didn't say anything to do with them looking into it more or finding anything. Or so why I'm, he thought his friend was by yeah, John or anything. But I'm assuming, obviously, if they traced him to the Netherlands, they surely got in touch with him. Yeah. So... Obviously, I'm assuming that was ruled out, maybe. Um, then, moving on, there's a little bit of a clash here. Okay. But um, I'll get to them. I'll say I'll point it out when we get to it. Okay. Um, in the years following the Bible John killings, many women came forward claiming to have been sexually assaulted after an evening at the Barrowland. Uh, one of these women was Hannah Martin. Hannah claimed that she had been assaulted and raped by Bible John and had, as a result, fallen pregnant and given birth to his child at the Glasgow Royal Maternity Hospital in January of 1970. Okay. Uh, Hannah gave birth to a girl and initially named her Isabel. Now, I tried to look up. This is who I was trying to look up more on earlier, and I couldn't really see well, anything. I couldn't find anything. Okay. Um, because I was trying to see what it means by initially named the daughter Isabel. Did she give her up for adoption? Did she change the name later? Mm. You know, that kind of a thing. Did she do a kind um, of on it? You know... Um, so in April of 1969, Hannah had gone to the Barrowland and ended up leaving the dance hall with a tall man who she then had sex with. Now, this is where I see the clash because okay. I'm like, that makes it sound consensual to me. Yeah. But she said that she was raped. So I'm going to say that that part was raped, but it doesn't really go into much about that. Okay. Yeah. Um, Hannah had accepted his offer of a lift home. However, during the drive, the man's sexual demeanor became more aggressive. Hannah was drunk and terrified that she may get attacked and vomited in the man's car. The man then bundled her out of the car and drove off, leaving her stranded on the pavement. Um, now, David Leslie, an author, has claimed that Hannah's daughter could be the one indisputable link to the identity of Bible John. And if the, that is true, that is true, that if, is that, true. If, if that was, if it was, do you know, like it could but have been I someone else that raped her? At the end of the day, if there, like, was there anything said about DNA taken from the victims' bodies, like the murder victims? Semen. Oh, so they did get DNA? Mm-hmm. Okay, so they could test the daughter, or they could test Isabel's DNA against, against that, that DNA? Yeah. And at least then they would but be then, able to... But then, again, where it says initially named her Isabel, I'm assuming that maybe she was given up for adoption. Yeah. In the sense that, would it not be, if she was still with this Hannah Martin, would it not be really easy to track the yeah, Isabel down and get DNA. the DNA to yeah. just run that test? Um, so I'm assuming it's a case of maybe a, uh, now this is um, what's the word hearsay what I'm saying is hearsay 
conjecture. Is that the right word? That's what I was going to say. I but think like, so. But oh. basically what I'm saying is not fact. It's just a theory. Um, is, you know, so my theory would be that maybe she gave her up for adoption and it could have been a closed adoption. And they for some reason they couldn't unlock it. Um, and they can't find her to do that. But I'm assuming given the circumstances, it would be okay that you'd be able to open those records. But... I it depends, I guess. I Every case is I different. No, I think it would depend on the law of. I feel like because when it comes to murders, Scotland, that the majority of countries allow would, it to be opened yeah. only for the viewing of the police. Yeah, like they wouldn't be only for official it viewing. To the yeah, exactly. Or it would be for investigative. But reasons. so I'm just surprised there's not more on that possible yeah. link, the biological link. If that is the son, I mean, sorry, the, the daughter, daughter of, of Bible, Bible John. John. But then they could track him down, and unless they like, have evidence. It could just be a rapist. Imagine how awful... Not Bible, it John. W- it would be for that girl if they did track her down, they tested her DNA and she had to find out that, like... But I'm assuming... If she didn't know, yeah. If she didn't know she, she was adopted, she, she has to find out she's adopted and that her biological father is a Is a serial killing rapist. Potentially a serial killer. Yeah. Um, and if it wasn't Bible, John, that's her father. Either way, it's either it's a rapist, a rapist yeah. or your and mother like, even is... Even if she knows she's adopted, that's still a very heavy thing to find out. Yeah, so like it's either your father's a rapist, your father's a serial killer and a rapist, or your mother's a liar. Yeah. Which, obviously, just for the record, I would believe it. Yeah, like... I'm just yeah, saying We're that, not discrediting yes, her saying that that is just, of course, always an awful possibility. Yeah. But, you know, either way, regardless of what way she found out and what came of it... Mm. It's like ground shattering yeah, for absolutely, them. Absolutely, absolutely. Like I can't um, imagine. And that's it on that kind of little okay. part. There wasn't too much there. Now, in 1996, Strathclyde Police exhumed the body of John Irvin McKines from a graveyard in Stonehouse, South Lanarkshire. John, who had served in the Scots Guards, had committed suicide at the age of 41 in 1980. John was the cousin of one of the original suspects in the Bible John investigation. And so a DNA sample was taken from the body of John for comparison with semen samples found on Helen Puttock's stockings, mm-hmm. uh, the same stockings that were used to strangle Helen. The test results conducted, unfortunately, came back inconclusive. Okay. So, you know, it's not, not a, for it's or not against. Yes or no. Yeah. Uh, with then Lord Advocate... Lord McKay stating insufficient evidence existed to link John with the murder of Helen Puttock and the Crown officially cleared John of playing any part in the Bible John murders in July 1996 um, which I suppose good for if there's any living family of this person good for mm-hmm. that because, to be get cleared of it because um, you know they're dead they can't defend themselves or yeah. own up um, and that's all on that suspect okay. um, now here as mentioned earlier Peter Tobin we're we're on to him. This is mm-hmm. quite a lengthy one. Um, now, it has been speculated by many criminologists and investigators that the convicted serial killer, Peter Tobin, may have been Bible John. Peter Tobin was convicted um, in May of 2007 of the 2006 murder of Polish student Angelica Kluck, who had been raped, beaten and then stabbed to death. Peter had relocated from Shettleston, Glasgow, to England in August of 1969, uh, prior to the final two murders committed by Bible John, after marrying his first wife, who he had met at the Barrowland Ballroom in 1968. Interesting. So then, from August 1969, Peter lived in Brighton for 20 years, and from the late 1980s, he would alternately reside in either Scotland or South England. Mm-hmm. 
Um, the fact Peter Tobin had attacked Angelica Cluck so viciously, hid her body and then fled to London before his arrest, did not suggest the work of an amateur. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, the methods of violence used towards two 1991 victims that actually ended up being unearthed from his Margate Holmes garden. So he had... More victims. Oh my God, he's buried, buried them in his garden. garden. Um, and then obviously they were able to tell about the kind of violence used on those victims as well yeah. as the Angelica victim. Um, however, one inconsistency is that Bible John displayed his victim's body in public places, mm -hmm. whereas Peter Tobin buried all of his known, known victims. And also Peter Tobin stabbed Angelica, whereas Bible John exactly. stabbed his victims. And then as well, if you were to go by the thing, he was not supposedly in Scotland yeah. for the last two Yeah. Bible John's so, so he would have only been around for the first quite one quite a lot of inconsistencies yeah there. now some contemporary visual similarities do exist between Peter Tobin when he was in his 20s and the 1969 composite drawing of Bible John however the composite drawing showed Bible John having red hair and contemporary pictures of Peter show that he did not have this hair colour mm -hmm. so you know not the same not matching completely on match that up, yeah all three of Peter's former wives had given accounts of being repeatedly imprisoned, beaten and raped by him. Oh my God. Each of them also stated Peter had been driven to extreme psych extreme sorry, extreme physical violence by the female menstrual cycle. Wasn't a fan of the period. And neither was Bible John, nope, it seemed, or, or was a fan of getting rejected because of the period, one or the other. Yeah. In addition, Peter is also known to have been a devout Roman Catholic with strong religious views, and the alias Bible John may have... Um, the alias Bible John um, gave to Jean Langford and Helen Puttock in 1969 is similar to one of the pseudonyms that Peter was known to have used regularly, John okay. Semple. And one of the synonyms she was with John Simpleton. Yeah, she wasn't sure if it was Templeton, Templeton or, or something like or that. Ec not Eccleston. Um, something, something anyway along the lines. They were very all, yeah. yeah. But this was John Semple and she had said that John Simpleton was one of the ones given. So that's a bit sus. Very suspicious. Uh, David Wilson, a criminologist, um, actively investigated Peter Tobin's case for three years and strongly believes the available evidence supports his theory that Peter Tobin is Bible John. David has stated that the moment he believed Peter was Bible John happened during Peter's trial for the 1991 murder of 18-year-old Dinah McNichol, um, one of the women whose bodies had been found in his Margate garden. Mm -hmm. uh, David also uses circumstantial evidence to support his theory, such as the striking similarities between trial testimony from an acquaintance of um, Dinah McNichol's, who had been in her company on the evening that Dinah was abducted, and the conversation that Jean Langford claimed to have had with Bible John on the evening of her sister Helen's murder. Okay. Now, among the important points of overlap are both men mentioning they don't drink at um, they don't drink at Hogmanay, which is like um, it, it's like Scottish New Year. Okay. From what I remember, because I didn't write it down, but I'm, I'm sure that's it's like a Scottish New Year type of thing. Okay. Um, and having a cousin who had once scored a hole in one in a golf match. Because that's important. That's so specific. Isn't it? Now, this information, as well as other circumstantial evidence, had led Professor David Wilson to state, quote, I didn't set out to prove Peter Tobin, well, Tobin, he just said, was Bible John, but I would stake my professional reputation on it, unquote. Uh, even though DNA testing has been used to clear multiple suspects, detectives believe obtaining a forensic link between Peter Tobin and any of the murder victims linked to Bible John is unlikely due to the deterioration, deterioration of, of the, the physical samples. samples due to poor storage. Typical. 
Like really, and that's all on the on the Peter Tobin side of things in there anyway. Well, okay. not all actually. I tell a lie. We've got much more. That was oh. bullshit. Um, <laughs> okay. Now, a police investigation that was initiated in two thousand and six called Operation Anagram to trace the movements of Peter Tobin throughout the decades and to determine his potential culpability in any other crimes. A woman informed the investigator she had been raped by Peter Tobin after she had met him at the Barland Ballroom in 1968, mm-hmm. not long after the first uh, murder right. um, was known to have been committed by Bible John. So, hmm. Uh, Peter Tobin has um, been ruled out as a suspect by police, although it is often reported that Peter had moved from Glasgow to Brighton after the 1969 murders. Sorry, I think it was sorry. I think it was commonly reported that he moved from Glasgow to London after the nineteen sixty nine murders, but he actually relocated to Brighton with his fiance. Okay. Now, uh, his fiance was Margaret Mountney. Um, before the second murder that was attributed to Bible John, so as far as they know, he was not even in um, Scotland when the second murder that was credited to Bible John. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, how could it be him? Yeah. Um. Operation Anagram uncovered that Peter was in Brighton at the time of the final two Bible John murders, so Jemima and Helen. Um, Peter had married his first wife in Brighton on the 6th of August 1969, 10 days prior to the murder of Jemima MacDonald on August 16th. And that date, the date of the marriage, is recorded on the marriage certificate. Peter's wife also testified that they were still on their honeymoon in Brighton at the time. Um, the second victim was murdered and she insists Peter was with her at the time. Um, Peter Tobin was in police custody for an unrelated crime when another one of the killings took place. Um, and he was also still living in Brighton at the time of the third murder, meaning that had it have been him, he would have had to travel without his wife knowing to Glasgow and back from Brighton to have committed the murder of Helen Pottock. Mm-hmm. So like, there's and a lot of inconsistencies there between being like, in the police station for something else, yeah. being with your wife, being on honeymoon, getting married, you know, those kind of things. Like, the, the thing is, I think So I think he's a piece of shit that yeah, has done a lot oh, of stuff. absolutely. But I don't think he's Bible John. And I do think he fits the Bible John description in certain ways, but the fact that there is no physical way for him to have committed the murders does, unfortunately, rule him out. Yeah, so it doesn't seem likely now Peter Tobin's DNA was checked against the semen sample for Bible John as part of Operation Anagram mm-hmm. the results of this test conclusively proved that the bodily fluid was not from Peter Tobin right so it wasn't inconclusive it was conclusive exactly they can definitively say it was not him now the, the doubts surrounding the DNA evidence notwithstanding the police also have a record of the bite mark the killer left on Helen Puttock's body oh shit yeah yeah which they can cross check with Peter's dental records as had been done with the police when the police exhumed and eliminated John McKean's as a suspect in 1996. Uh, the senior investigating officer in charge of Operation Anagram, David Swindle, has stated that there is no evidence to link Peter Tobin to the Bible John murders, and Operation Anagram eventually discounted the theory. David had previously presided over the 2002 review of the Bible John murders, uh, four years prior to the initial discoveries of Peter Tobin's murders. Um, although Professor David Wilson, as we'd mentioned previously, had claimed in his... Oh, wait, no. Did we mention him yet? I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> Professor David Wilson had claimed in his 2010 book, The Lost British Serial Killer, that Bible John was Peter Tobin. Yeah, we did mention him. His co-writer for the book, Paul Harrison, later recanted on the claims they made in the book. And in 2013, Harrison published a new book instead claiming Bible John was a police officer. 
possible. Possible. Very possible. Um, there was something I was going to say, and I can't remember what it was, but it was to do with Peter Tobin. Oh, yes, another kind of thing that I suppose you could theorise is, because remember, I don't think there was a semen sample at the first one. Okay. I think the main semen sample, semen sample was found with Helen Puttock. Mm-hmm. Um, like, another theory you could say is that maybe Peter Tobin killed the first victim. Yeah. And then the other two were copycat, just copycatted the same. Copycat what was on to the first yeah. one and stuck to the same area to kind of cover their arse, or I attempt to cover their arse. it's strange that the murderer committed, we'll say, two to three murders, and then just... Disappeared. Disappeared. Yeah, very weird. Never killed again. Um, as far as we know. Exactly. Which is why they kind of, I suppose, think maybe incarcerated for something else or yeah. mentally, you know, institutionalised. Institutionalised or maybe or dead. They died, yeah. Do you know? Um, then, our final bit on this case um, is, I suppose, a bit of aftermath. Mm-hmm. No further murder victims um, killed in Scotland or even elsewhere in the UK have ever been conclusively attributed to Bible John. And the manhunt for this murderer was one of the most extensive manhunts in Scottish criminal history. The murders of the three women, Patricia Docker, Jemima MacDonald and Helen Puttock, are sadly unsolved to this day. However, the case does remain open with many investigators remaining certain that the killer or killers were very likely to have been protected by one or more individuals they or he had known. Mm-hmm. Um, not everyone agrees that the three killings were the work of the same person. Yeah. Uh, like I said, you've got that copycat theory. Maybe the first was one was someone else and the other two were like just someone yeah. getting in on it. Um, because you do get that. Yeah, and it has been pointed out by some, while not always but that the gap of 18 months between the first two killings is unusual for a serial killer. I would agree. Yeah, you know, like, it's impossible, but between the first two killings, it's very strange. You might get someone who commits loads and then might have a cool-down period for a while, Mm. or might try and go live a normal life for a few years and then be like, nah, and then go back to to it. You know, but between the first two, I find that very strange. strange. And then to stop after three that we know of. Yeah, even weirder. Um, Which is where... I suppose the and that later killings you know um, could have been a copycat that's kind of where that comes from the timing and the police have also received criticism for potentially hindering their own investigation by prematurely jumping to conclusion that all three murders had been committed by the same person now I don't know how to feel about that statement I'm neither here nor there because from what I gather at the start they were in my opinion Unless maybe it just, when you're reading it on paper, maybe it seems like it took a while mm. when it didn't take that long. But I it seemed like they were slower than some cases to jump on that it was the same person bandwagon. Yeah, yeah. and I, I will say, like, in a lot of cases... I'd be the first to say I think the police fucked up, but yeah, I yeah, like, thought they of, waited a while. In a lot of cases, you would, like, you would see a poor investigative work, but I think in this one, they did do quite a lot. And, like, I feel like it's not very harmful to you know think that you could be looking at a serial killer here and that they're all the same yeah. as long as you also keep yourself open-minded enough yeah, to be aware that it could be different off. people and so I, that when you're looking at a crime scene you can be like okay does this look like the work of a serial killer or an individual yeah and like i will say i don't think that they box themselves off at all into no, this so, is just one person or this is multiple people they kind of they waited a bit before they came to the conclusion. The evidence spoke for itself. Like, it did yeah, seem like followed, the work of a serial killer. They followed the evidence. They followed the evidence. I will say that. Um, so, then, in 2004, police announced their intentions to genetically test several men in a further attempt to identify the killer, with all individuals concerned being requested to submit blood samples. 
This endeavour followed um, a previous the previous discovery of an 80% genetic match from the semen samples retrieved from the final crime scene attributed to Bible John with a DNA sample re- retrieved at the site of a minor crime committed two years prior. Okay. The sample was enough of a match to lead officers to believe that the person who committed the offence was related to the killer. I suppose 80% match it wouldn't be the person themselves but it yeah, could be someone related. Exactly, like that's a very, very close match. Um, now, Jean Langford, um, the, Helen, Potter, Helen Potter's sister. Yes, the only witness to have engaged in a lengthy conversation with Bible John, sadly died in September of 2010 at 74 years of age. Uh, Jean had, as we know, given the police the description used to form the second composite drawing created um, of the suspect, which continues to remain the most significant clue as to the physical appearance of the killer. Uh, Jean Langford discussed her sister's murder many years later, and she herself dismissed Professor Wilson's theory that Peter Tobin had been the man with whom she had shared a taxi with on the night of her sister's murder. And I do feel like she would know. Yeah. And that concludes the case of Bible John. I like how we both did um, unsolved cases one week, yeah. two weeks in a row. Nice. Yeah, we just recorded them on the one day. Yeah, just on the one day. So uh, I back promise to back. this will not end with me butchering Shana Fianna Fáil Aron Naveen my apologies <laughs> Jesus Christ um, I'm currently trying to look up the composite sketch for Bible John but my yeah, internet is shit. I, I think I have it saved anyway so I can show it to you in a second I would like to see I, um, so yes that concludes Bible John um, as always thanks for listening exactly thank you very much for listening give us five stars on Apple Podcasts or any podcasting platform you're on that lets you give us stars and reviews and those lovely mm-hmm. nice things and if we're in your Spotify wrapped please let us know oh yes if we're in your Spotify wrapped because someone um, a couple of people have sent me their Spotify wrapped and we're in their top five yes. on the shows they listen to so if you have your Spotify wrapped and we're in yours um, find us on Instagram Twisted Talks the Pod and send us a little screenshot we appreciate you and I'm... Um, oh, you got it. I got it, but I'm also getting a phone call, so one second. Um, oh, he's gone. Okay. Um, anywho. That is a very detailed... It is, isn't it? Very detailed composite. Like, very well done. Um, And I will put the sketches, drawings... Is that... That must be a modernised one, is it? Or is that from the or is that the art one that was done? I don't know, but um. But we will put them on the Instagram I feel, I feel the day this saying, goes off. I feel bad for saying this, but thank you. Tanya, well, actually, I can't give out. I said the same thing. <laughs> we about all love a bad Jana. boy. Not, Not a fucking terrorist, though, Janice. Yeah, um, that one though, he not so cute. <laughs> no. That one, he looks like he's gonna live in a Sony Bean. That's why we can't find <laughs> he's him. He's one of Sony Beans. <gasps> He's a descendant of Sonny Bean. We've cracked it. No. We have cracked it. That's why they can't be found. It. They run back to the cave. Maybe they found a new cave. I don't know. But anyway, once again, thanks millions for listening. Um, when is this episode coming out, actually? I don't um, fucking know. I'm like, is it time to start saying weeks? Happy Christmas yet? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Not like on a date. Um, no, I don't think it is. No, we've got some time. We've got another one or two episodes before we have to do that. So... Yes. Uh, next week, we have no idea what we're doing yet, but it's going nope. to be a joint case. Yes. So be there or be square because you're not around. Ah, um, <laughs> you're so hee-hee. funny. Okay, right, for the one million and tenth time. Love ya. Love you all. Bye. Thanks for listening. Five star reviews. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, all the good things. We're on YouTube as well, although I'm a bit h- behind with uploading the episodes. Class. But we're so cool. Yes. Much love. Bye. Hasta la pasta. Ciao. <laughs>